This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor for Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show. Professor, the major theme you've been talking about all year, uh, we start to see it in action. Uh, some inflation numbers running hot. I know that you're going to have some commentary on that. We're talking about the Fed. What is their response with a, a former Fed vice chairman? Uh, and then we also have a great equity strategist who's going to be coming on to talk all these issues. Professor, though, to start with you, give us your read of what happened this week. Yeah, and people who have been listening behind the market should not be surprised. Uh, really uh, hot inflation data. Um, and uh, uh, certainly uh, the CPI was the biggest surprise, um, but PPI was also high. And, and we should mention, by the way, and this just came over the wires uh, a couple of um, hours ago, uh, we get the monthly University of Michigan inflation forecast, and uh, way above expectations, uh, they have a one-year forecast, um, and a five to ten year forecast. The one year forecast was supposed to, uh, at least uh, according to Bloomberg, go up from 3.4 to 3.5. In fact, the expectations went up to 4.6, uh, which is one of the biggest jumps in, in, in well over a decade. Uh, the uh, uh, inflation for five to ten years, they didn't have an expectation, but it jumped from 2.7 to 3.1. That's huge for in one month for a um, uh, uh, five uh, to ten year projection on inflation. And by the way, these samples of, uh, of expectations were taken uh, well before we got the uh, CPI report yesterday. So I'm wondering whether the participants, uh, having gotten these hot inflation numbers in the last couple of days, might actually now be higher than uh, than this number right now. Um, so uh, inflation is breaking out. Uh, I, uh, you know, expect as the economy opens, and uh, obviously with the uh, the new CDC um, uh, recommendation or uh, uh, of uh, non um, non mask uh, wearing is going to encourage the opening. Uh, to take place, uh, we could see inflation uh, really quite rapid. The the uh, I went back and checked um, since the pandemic uh, began in March of last year. Uh, the M2 money supply, which is the broad based uh, money supply, has gone up nearly thirty percent. We have never seen that before um and if you just you know think well you know we're from last year we should be at gdp maybe four five percent higher on nominal gdp so 20 to 25 percent of this is going to go into inflation and this is exactly the projection i've been making for months is that when this process is over i'm not expecting 20 percent inflation this year but in, in the period of the next two or three years uh, I have, you know, been on record as saying that I think that the price level will be uh, 20% higher um, than uh, than it was uh, before the pandemic. 
Yeah, very interesting uh, to see that all starting to play out. Um, and we're going to have a few really interesting guests here. Um, we have Fed, former Fed uh, Vice Chairman Don Cohn, who's today a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. Um, he's been an external member of the Financial Policy Committee at the Bank of England. We also have Jim Liebenthal, who's a equity strategist at Serity Partners with us. Uh, and you had this week, Professor in a Wall Street Journal op-ed titled, The Fed is Playing with Fire, Urging the Fed to Rethink What They're Doing um, from, from Druckenmiller, who's one of the uh, notable, uh, one of the notable investors of, of uh, the macro generation. Um, any reaction to the, yeah. to the, to the piece first? He was on CNBC also, and I, in response to his op-ed piece, and uh you know i i i basically agree with it i mean you know i uh, he, you know this is the inflation forecast he was also talking a bit about the reserve currencies and those were longer term and um i'm, I'm i i i don't think uh that that is as relevant um but the the fed uh, uh i i don't know they appear clueless um i i I have had my own little theory that uh, that uh, Jay Powell uh, and others are actually recognizing it, but trying to stay in the good graces of the Biden administration in order to be renominated as chairman of the mm-hmm. Fed. I'm very interested in Don. And by the way, Don, welcome back. We have had you in the past, so I've, I'm, I'm very thrilled that you were consented to come back. But uh, is is it possible um, that uh, uh, you know Don, uh, that Jay Powell wants a renomination um, and then will clamp down once he feels secure? He has another four years, rather than if he complains too much now, the Dems are going to be pressing uh, Biden to uh, replace him with someone who uh, might even be uh, more inflationary. Yeah, so I don't. Uh, thanks for having me back on again, Jeremy. Both yes. Jeremys. Uh, it's great to be with you again, and it's a been a, it's a fascinating day to be to be on. Yeah. So I, I don't think uh, I'd be happy to discuss Fed policy, inflation, whatnot. But I don't think I'm, I'm sure actually that Jay Powell is not motivated by the renomination, um, reappointment uh, motivation. I what, what makes he, you sure of that? He, he, he has, well, I think partly watching him perform when Donald Trump was screaming at him. So I thought he did a great job focusing on the Fed's legislative mandates, stable prices, maximum employment, stressing the nonpartisanship, um, and I think uh, he's enough of a student of history to know that a precedent for that sort of thing, which is Arthur Burns in the 1970s, ended up very badly. And if he thought that inflation was really getting out of control, and let's we'll come back to that subject, that he would, I, I'm I'm certain that he would speed up the uh discussion of tightening monetary policy i think it's a hard it's a hard analytic issue what's in terms of the inflation but i i i don't see him motivated by that i mean he would uh, go down in history uh as a bad federal reserve chairman if he allowed the inflation to get going and then had to slam on the brakes it would be a a very hard thing so uh, I, i don't see that okay well what what Don, are you? I mean, I, I gave you my inflation forecast. Uh, it, it, it's it's uh, again. We're not talking about double digit. I'm not talking about a return to the 70s or anything. But something that we have not seen uh, in 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 decades um, uh, that uh, you know could bring us to a price level that is. Uh, you know, 15 to 20 percent above where it was pre-pandemic. I mean, do you think that that is possible looking at what we have, unprecedented monetary growth? 2020, you know the money statistics as well as I do. Uh, M2 growth, uh, highest in history since Milton Friedman, you know, established the series in 1870 in his monetary history. I mean, this has got to have some serious consequences on the economy. 
Uh, yeah, so I, I, I guess I don't uh, translate the money growth into inflation quite as literally as you are, Jeremy. I've lived through the 70s, but also the 80s and the 90s, where money growth and inflation were not very well related. And I think I think part of what's happening here is people got those checks and they deposited them in the bank and they will be spending them. So uh, there will be spending. So I do think it's it's an important statistic that you're pointing to. So savings have gone up and they're being held in very liquid, spendable form. So I do think the question here is of the catch-up spending, spending down those excess savings is going to be very easy for households. They've been paying down debt so they can run up their credit cards again if they want to. Um, And then that's going to create pressure on prices. So I agree the price level is rising. And uh, your word, the unprecedented aspect of this is – has many dimensions, but one of them, of course, is that uh, coming out of a pandemic. So I, I think it's not, um, mm-hmm. and people have been talking for a long time that demand will recover faster than supply, both in the labor market and in manufacturing. We see, you know, chip shortages damping down uh, auto manufacturing and manufacturing other things, shipping problems. So there are bottlenecks in the economy. Demand is recovering rapidly, supply less rapidly. So that's going to put a lot of upward pressure on prices, and that's exactly exactly what we're seeing. And the question is, what is this thing going to look like six, nine months from now when the economy is open, when kids are back in school, so uh, parents can go back to work? Um, is that going to relieve some of these uh, some of these supply pressures so that prices probably wouldn't drop, but they wouldn't continue to go up like that? And that's what the Fed, that's the tough analytic uh, aspect that the Fed, uh, the Fed needs to be paying attention to. Okay, so they've asserted right. that these are bottleneck issues. They'll go away. Inflation will rise, but then inflation will come back down again. Uh, uh, but I think, I think it's the, more than yeah. – I mean, I, I think there's this feed on demand. Firms are having no trouble passing on higher prices at this point. Uh, and I don't think that some of the workers, honestly, are coming – so the Fed is – if the Fed is going to wait for employment to come back, honestly, I don't think so. Because – I mean, not for years, because I think – that uh, uh, I I know at the university they gave retirement, very unbelievably generous retirement packages, not just to the faculty, but also to administrators. Um, And and, and many other firms looked around, who do we not need? Um, Okay, give them a severance package, generous, and and let's, uh, you know, be lean and mean here. Um, These people, you know, are, are not going to be coming back. Um, uh, and I'm not saying all of them will, but I mean, if you're just going to wait for employment to be back to that pre-pandemic level, I, I think you are going to be waiting way too, um, way too long. Well, I actually think you have a great point there, and I hope the Fed is flexible enough to see that. So I think there have been a lot of retirement. And some of those folks will come back in the labor force, but some of them are retired, as you say. And so the pre-pandemic level of employment or the ratio, even better, would be the ratio of employment to population. Is going to be the post-pandemic is going to be lower than the pre-pandemic at, a, at full employment. And uh, the Fed would be making a mistake, I think, if it really waited for EPOP come back to the previous to the previous level um and and it's and it's worrisome that they can i guess i would like to hear them discuss the um nuances of what 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 full employment might look like yeah a year from now yeah so i i think you've raised a very good point but a lot of the emphasis has been on prime age right so of the when the economists like you and me look at 
these employment things, we often concentrate on prime age employment to take out some of those factors. Right, right. That, and that, 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 that is, that's important. Uh, also, I mean, they're going to use, I think, all summer special things, special so they're going to make excuses, special supplies, you know, constraints and all that. And as you say, when schools reopen in the fall, will I mean, and, and we know there's been some greater female uh, drops in labor force participation, so that should definitely improve. But you know, they may then wait until October, November, December. That might be too late to start moving down. What 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 do yeah. you think? So I think it could be, and let me return to the point you made leading in, which I hadn't seen the Michigan survey things. Yeah, just so came out at 10 o'clock. Really, um, really key issue here is inflation expectations. So we're looking at price level changes. It's fine to look through a price level change if it doesn't build itself into continuing inflation. And so they should be looking very carefully at various measures of inflation expectations. And the Michigan surveys, I think the caveat on the Michigan surveys is, my memory, Jeremy, is that they respond very uh, strongly to increases in food and energy prices, gas prices. Uh, people overweight the stuff that they buy every day. But no, no, of so, course, this was before this recent uh, pipeline failure that they took these and the jump yeah. in prices. So we might expect it to be even much worse next month. Uh, that's possible, though gasoline prices were rising before that. Yes, it was. Um, I, uh, uh, my, my barber shop raised its uh, haircut prices <laughs> because, quote, of inflation – this was uh, two months ago, and I said, what inflation? And they said, gasoline prices are going up. So, well, Don, you're lucky enough to have hair to, to, to go to a barber for. I... <laughs> not, not much, not much. I mean, you know, I have a colleague at the, the University of Pennsylvania who is in the energy complex, and uh, he told me something scary that I it didn't really – you know, I put into my factors, he said oil's going to $100 a barrel. And I said, why? I said, and he said, it is because uh, when, when the prices crashed last summer, so many of the fracking uh, cut down that um, uh, they, they will not be able to get online in the next six months. And uh, we're going to be 4 million barrels short a day. We're going to have to import it. Now, the Saudis have the ability to pump a little bit more now, and people say, what is their limit? They don't want to get too high either because they really don't want to bring all that fracking back. But, you know, maybe they're, they're, maybe there's 80, maybe they're 85 or 90. I, I'm just saying that we, we very might be getting some big oil increases over the next three to six months. Right. And and the risk there again, Jeremy, would be if they get built into inflation expectations, then it creates a process going forward. Uh, I, I haven't looked in the last day or two, but when you looked at the inflation priced into the financial markets, yeah. at least as of about two days ago, and the, the difference between the nominals and the tips, uh, rates. There was quite a spike in inflation for the next five years, but then it, if you looked at the five-year forward, so what what will five-year inflation be five years from now? It was lower. Yeah. So the markets were building in a rise in inflation and then a fall, which is kind of exactly what the Fed itself is mm -hmm. building in. I, I, I think I'm a, bringing a up on my computer a, a graph of uh, the 10-year difference between tips and the uh, nominal yield. And um, on Wednesday, it did uh, hit a high of 258. It's now 257. It's been steadily moving up. No, You know, there was that... Uh, uh, that that one-time spike right at the uh, CPI announcement, and then it kind of faded uh, the rest of uh, Wednesday. 
Um, right. we, we also have to recognize that those differences are, are, are uh, biased by risk premiums of various sorts yep. Yep. that are in those differences. And, um, um, yep. uh, you know, so it – but it is definitely – there's no question that the Fed has announced – Pretty explicitly that they look at that five year five year forward uh or you know the the difference between the tips and the nominal bonds as their uh, notion of of anchoring inflationary expectations, so we should be uh, paying attention to them. I don't know how you know i mean you could say two point five seven percent difference over ten years is not that you know. Right. Uh, it's certainly not what we get in the jump that we saw on the um, uh, University of Michigan data, um, but uh, it is certainly trending upward. And the, but you also have to remember that they've said they want to run above two for right. a little while because they've been running below two for so long, and that so to average it out to two in order to keep those inflation expectations anchored. Uh, at two and not keep drifting below to prevent the Japanification of the U.S. here. So uh, they they probably don't mind that they're a little above two. And as you say, you can't translate them exactly basis point for basis point uh, because of these various premiums. But if they continue to rise, and particularly if they rose beyond some historic range mm-hmm. i think it would get their it would get their attention they'd have to pay some attention to it i think they're in a very tricky position now i mean after all they put a new framework for monetary policy in place last summer that framework was a response to the fact that inflation had persistently under underrun their target and that nominal and real interest rates were very, very close to zero, or in real case, below zero. Uh, Even in in equilibrium rates were, equilibrium real rates were uh, estimated to be somewhere between zero and a half. And now you're, so you're operating in this very low interest rate world that uh, limits their flexibility to uh, ease policy if if a recession sets in. So they changed the framework to reflect their experience of the last 15 years, which was low inflation, um, unemployment, which was which could drop very, very low without causing very much inflation. Now, the risk is that um, the world has changed and we're not in this disinflationary environment that we were in before, reflecting globalization, technological change demography, et cetera. And if those things are changing, then and we have this very unusual demand supply in short run demand supply imbalance coming out of the out of the uh, out of the pandemic, it's going to be a very tricky thing for them to to navigate. I think they're they've been correct to say that inflation dynamics don't change on a dime. It's a very slow moving process. Uh, and and you can't take a couple months or uh, or even a year and say everything's changed. No longer is it disinflationary. But I think that there are risks. Uh, they need to appreciate the upside risks. And let me and just mention that I just brought up the twenty-year difference between the tips. Uh, this is just ten-year uh, and the nominal, and it's all it's ten-year high. Uh, was 2.66 percent reached in March of 2005. Um, it is 2.42 percent uh, right now. So we're about 20 basis points uh, behind that high. And by the way, it, it moved for many years right around between 240 and 260 um, uh, for almost 10 years, and then started drifting down, and then of course hit its well, low point during both the financial crisis spiking down and during the uh, yeah, right. COVID-19 crisis. But we're moving into that range, 20 basis points. I mean, if people start, you know, looking at that, I mean, I don't have the five-year, five-year right up here to see whether it is, and people say it's broken through the high. I mean, Powell, Powell will have to act. 
Professor, if I could jump in with a question for you, uh, since uh, you know you've been saying maybe we're going to have this inflation. If you were sitting in the Fed's chair today and you were saying, you know, we got they got to do this in steps. They got to start tapering their bonds, and they've got hiking rates. How would you be navigating this next cycle? Well, I mean, that's what I would be doing. I mean, I would be. I would say we've begun ta- talking about tapering. Now, that's going to cause a big ripple in the market. Uh, but, uh, again, I, I, the inflation is, ba- is baked in, I think. Um, uh, I mean, they're not going to subtract money from the system. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Don is right. You know, the relationship between money and income has not been great. We've had a big velocity decline over the last 30, 40 years. But, Don, a lot of that was because we had a big interest rate decline. I mean, which is, is right what theory says. As interest rates go down, velocity should go down. But right. now we're bumping against zero. I don't think that you're – Would we, are you predicting another downward move of velocity that could absorb this extra money that has been added? That's what worries me. I, I think that that downward movement – has come to the end, and now we're going to see a closer relationship between, uh, you know, money and nominal income in the economy. So I think that's possible, but some of that will be in real, Jeremy. So remember that uh, for all the great news we had, we still have, and you know, maybe eight million people more, less, fewer, fewer employed, eight million fewer employed than we did at the beginning. Now maybe all of them won't come back. That's, you, you know, a million, two million, but mm-hmm. there's still excess capacity in the labor market when that supply comes on. So I think some of that, some of that money will go into purchases of goods and services. Uh, we saw in the retail sales, and the retail sales were kind of interesting. I just sort of saw the headlines because I... Yeah, they were uh, moderate this month, but the last month was like one of the biggest blowouts in history. I mean... Right. Right, right, um, and, but it, it was clear that people are shifting from goods to services. So that's that that's that in the in today's data. So that's an interesting. Down, what do you say? Do we getting uh, you know McDonald's offering fifteen, seventeen dollars? I mean, you know, suddenly Biden's overly ambitious fifteen dollar minimum <laughs> wage. Now it seems like the. Uh, you know, barely the minimum wage to, uh, to get these people back to work. I mean, is right. this, so, and, is I, this and I think temporary? that's the other, the other thing to watch is the wages. So the inflation expectations and wages are the things to watch to see whether we have a price adjustment or an inflation process so prices will continue to rise. And if you saw, I think seeing the wages rise from McDonald's is uh, is a is more a level adjustment. But if that leads to a lot of more increases and continuing increases in wages and labor costs, businesses are going to have to continue to feed that through to prices to maintain their profitability. So it's not so much the jump in prices or the jump in wages; it's the continuing process. And, and I think. I think the jury is still out on whether this is part of a continue will be part of a continuing process or is just a level adjustment. But Let the me, risks are are on the inflation side. I think. I know we've got uh, Jim Liebenthal for the second half of the program. I want him to jump in quickly before we take a break. I, I know you have a quick comment here, Jim. I do, and, and thank you for letting me jump in, uh, Professor and Chair Cohn. This McDonald's discussion is in my mind because I'm, I'm thinking about productivity here, and I haven't heard a discussion of that. Um, you know, when I go to McDonald's these days, there's these kiosks, right? It used to be there were five cashiers, and they would take your order and punch in on the cash register and run back and get you a Big Mac, but now it's all done on these kiosks. So. Presumably, uh, an average franchise at McDonald's is using a few fewer workers today than 10 years ago. Um, isn't that just a, an example of productivity which might save the day? Yeah, productivity jump. I, I agree. I think there is a product. I mean, look at getting rid of yeah, uh, dead wood, as corporations may have done with these packages, uh, lower productivity workers. Um, we're going to see a jump in productivity the question is, I mean, uh, you know, that will help. 
is, I mean, a 5% jump would be absolutely enormous. You know, when you have a 28.5% increase in the money supply, is it really going to be enough? We also had Amazon. What was Amazon is now paying new workers 17 dollars an hour uh to get them i don't know whether you know what new technologies they put in they're putting them in all the time that can really offset some of these wages you bring up a very good point though we're going to have a jump i just don't think it's going to be enough to to really offset some serious inflation that we're going to have well yeah i think that is a great point jim and uh i think we we've the remote working, the kiosks, et cetera, we've had some increases in productivity as a result of the pandemic, and and a lot of that will be retained. I think the question is, is there more? Will it, Is this a continuing process, AI and whatnot, that will 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 raise productivity on a on a sustaining on a sustained way? Productivity growth actually has been kind of disappointing for the last 10 or 15 years. It'd be great to see it pick up because that's that's how you get real wages higher without inflation. Dr. Thank Cohn, thanks for coming to share insights on a very important week. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You listen to Behind the Markets. We're talking with Jim Liebenthal, who's a partner equity strategist at Sarity Partners. Jim is a Wharton MBA grad, Professor Siegel student. Always great to talk to uh, Wharton MBAs on Wharton Business Radio. Uh, so, Jim, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us here on, on Behind the Markets. It's such a delight and, and an honor to spend time with you and Professor Siegel. Thank you. I mean, it's a really interesting conversation. Give our listeners a little bit about your personal background, um, how you first got into investing, family history there. I thought that was an interesting story to, to hear your personal story there. Sure, sure. Well, I'll start by saying I'm 52. And the reason I tell you that is I grew up in New York City uh, during the financial crisis. My family ran a municipal bond uh, firm. So I have grown up thinking about debt and macroeconomic events. Um, Obviously, the 70s were were quite a time for uh, debt investors as well as uh, New York City in particular. Um, I, I grew up at my father's knee learning about things like productivity, which we spoke about not that long ago. Uh, my, my first career was in the Navy as a uh, submarine officer, and then I went to business school, uh, where indeed I did uh, uh, learn from Professor Siegel, who had the same style of teaching as my father, frankly. So that was a very memorable uh, moment, uh, uh, two semesters, I believe it was. And um, uh, then I, since then, I've been uh, an equity manager. So the acorn uh, fell far from the tree as far as growing up in bonds and becoming an equity manager. But I simply love uh, dissecting business models, evaluating management teams, and finding a dollar's worth of value uh, selling for significantly less, which I, I think you can do on any given day. You have to combine the macroeconomic environment, which uh, Professor Siegel and, and uh, Chair Cohn were just talking about, with the individual companies uh, and, and thinking about them from the point of view of reading 10Ks and interviewing not just managements, but competitors of companies you invest in, suppliers, and all of that to figure out where you have an edge. Um, And I've been doing that professionally for about uh, 25 years now. I won't go on and on. Uh, I'll just restate I'm delighted to be on with Professor Siegel and you today. I, you know, I, I will want to drill into where you find those pockets of value, but let's start with that, just reflecting on the macro conversation we, we heard. I mean, how are you thinking about this Fed, the dynamic? Is is everything driven by, you know, interest rates? Where what, What's your sense of where that, that, that conversation lies? Well, I think, the, I think the Fed is the most powerful force in the market. Not one of the most powerful forces, the most powerful force. Uh, And you can certainly see that when the Fed was uh, hawkish in the fourth quarter of 2018. You could even see it in smaller examples, uh, late 2019 into early 2020. Nobody remembers this, but the Fed was putting liquidity into the system to unclog the repo market. Does anyone remember that? Uh, the market was rallying then, and we see now that as little little whiffs and hints of inflation suggest that the Fed 
might uh, be less accommodative, that the market is having trouble with that. I will say again, the Fed is the most important uh, force in the market. It's not the only force, and we can talk about taxes as well. Uh, we can also talk about the fact that profits are very high and growing rapidly. But if the Fed moves off of its ultra-accommodative stance, the market is going to pay attention. Yeah, and and so as, as do you see a sense of when you think they will – if given this outlook on higher inflation, well, do you share the outlook on higher inflation and, and so think they will be too aggressive uh, like Professor Siegel is, is sort of calling for? I think apropos of the earlier discussion, uh, Chairman Powell has been uh, he's been true to what he has said throughout his tenure. Um, and I, I don't think he will sandbag to get reelected. I agree with Chairman Cohn about that. Um, but he is he is being very clear and repetitive that he's going to be late to move off the dime. There may well be a sociological reason for that uh, to make to to uh, focus on full employment before work, uh, worrying about price stability might have some sociologically positive effects for the country. Uh, not that he's exactly said that or that the Fed has exactly said that, but that's my supposition. I think we have to take the Fed at its word that it's going to be late to adjust to this. Now, they're also saying that inflation is transitory. So far, we've got one bad month. Um, we do. We also have anecdotes of lumber quadrupling. And as Professor Siegel was pointing out, uh, bonuses being offered at fast food restaurants just to interview. Um, those strike me as transitory effects. Um, they, at least on the first one, the cure for high prices is often high prices. Houses will become less affordable and demand will go down uh, and thus demand for lumber will go down uh, and eventually unemployment benefits will roll off and the uh, 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 these crazy bonuses that are being offered will probably go away. Now, I'm in, I'm in the business of predicting the future. It doesn't mean I always get it right. Um, but for the moment, I do believe these inflation pressures are going to be transitory. So beyond the Fed, as you think about the, the key narratives for markets over the, over the coming year, I mean, how do, how do you think about the relative state of the markets? Is it, is it still a bull market? Are, we, are you starting to get cautious? I mean, what's your overall view there? Jeremy, it's pretty good right now. Now, if you had asked me this two or three months ago, I would have said, Jeremy, it's fabulous. It's great. Now, what's changed? What's changed is actually the market's significantly higher, right? I, I didn't look this morning, but I think the S&P 500 is up about 8 9% in the first uh, four and a half months of the year. So you've got to respect that. You've got to respect that the market is pricing in profits that are coming in much higher than expected. But the degree by which profits are coming in better than expected is astounding. This first quarter uh, 2021 reporting season is almost done. We came into the reporting season thinking that profits would be up 25% year over year. It's coming in closer to 50%. And as we look at the full year 2021 and full year 2022 earnings estimates for the S&P 500, they're going up a lot. So if I talk about one of the secondary concerns, which is higher taxes, if we were to get a compromised tax rate of 25%, and I know it's more complicated than just that headline rate, but allow me to just go with this for a second. 25% would probably knock $10 a share uh, off of next year's earnings for the S&P 500. But those estimates have already gone up $13 since the beginning of the year, and they're likely to go higher. So as long as the Fed doesn't suddenly pivot, You've got to respect where profits are. You've got to expect the, respect the growth rate and say that things are pretty good for the stock market right now. Now, you mentioned that you could, no matter where you are, you could always find pockets of value. Um, is, is there a particular pocket of value today um, that, that you find the most interesting as you, as you look through the, the markets here? Well, I'm a bit of an old school investor, which means I have I have uh, hewed more towards the value side, not exclusively, but more towards the value side in my career. Obviously, the last five years have been a little bit tough in that regard as growth and hyper growth stocks have shot through the roof. But now we're seeing a little bit of a normalization. And what it tells me is that uh, the, the economic environment is positive for value stocks right now. Rising interest rates, steeper yield curve obviously favors financials. Uh, Stimulus-led spending and an early economic recover favors energy, industrials, materials. 
I look at growth stocks right now, and we have to divide them into two buckets. There are growth at a reasonable price stocks. And I look at the Apples of the world, the Googles of the world. I know these, it may seem trite to talk about the, the biggest companies in the world, but their valuations have come down from approximately 30-ish at the beginning of this year to now on Apple, as an example, about 23 on a forward, forward basis. More importantly, the PEG ratio or price to earnings to growth ratio uh, for Apple is about 1.5. Now, the PEG ratio is a measure of, am I paying too much for growth? And I will tell you that 1.5 for Apple is a dynamite price. It's just a dynamite price. A lot of volatility in the name. So if you buy it today, sure, it could go down tomorrow. But I feel pretty comfortable with the fundamentals of the business, the cash flows that are being generated, combined with that valuation, are going to make it a nice return over the next 12 months. The last thing I'll say, Jeremy, is there's a third bucket out there. And this is the real go-go stocks. I mean, this is the stuff. We're, we're hearing in the media all the time, right? This is the, the cloud software stocks and the new energy stocks. And uh, they get a lot of press. And, you know, Kathy Woods, they get a lot of press because they've shot through the roof. I mean, let's call it like it is. But they've started to come down recently. And I don't think they're done coming down because they're certainly, they're feeling the effect of higher interest rates. Their earnings are projected much further out in the future. And as you use a discounted cash flow model and rise and raise interest rates, those further out earnings come down in value quite a bit. But I'll tell you what, another 10, 15% down on some of these cloud software stocks in particular, they're going to look pretty interesting. You got to be patient though. You know, it's interesting. There was some debate going on on Twitter from some of my, uh, so the people I follow very closely on valuations. And one of the, one of the gentlemen was, was making a point on really should there be this link between duration and these bond pro like you know the higher rates being a big sell off to those big tech stocks and they point out to like the 2013 market where you had a rising rates and it, then you had small caps and value and financials do well but but tech, you know really the growth indexes outperformed in during the 2013 taper transition with rates rising um i mean how would you respond to Besides for this cash flow argument, which is you know pretty straightforward, but it, do you think the growth stocks should be sensitive to these interest rates as much as they the narrative is today? I think that's a great question. I'm gonna I'm gonna read into it slightly. I think what the what the question is is if interest rates are going higher, doesn't that bode well for economic activity? Doesn't that bode well for the future earnings growth of these companies? And I think the answer is a solid yes. So. Note the way I was phrasing things earlier. Another 10, 15% down on these cloud software stocks like a Twilio uh, or some of the more high flyers like a Roku. Um, you know, that's a point at which you say, I want to buy because the tactical environment, the short-term transient effect of higher interest rates is creating a setup where I'm getting the right value, the right price to buy these companies that indeed are going to grow and may grow even better than expected, as will also be reflected in those higher interest rates. So um, I think the question has two parts. One, higher interest rates can certainly and most likely do reflect better prospects for those companies. But price does matter when you buy companies. And that's what the market is wising up to right now. Last year, um, you know, these stocks that were up I mean, Tesla was what, 800% last year or in a trailing 12 months through January. Um, yes, fabulous prospects, but price matters. And we're seeing that right now as it's come down by about a third. We're talking with Jim Liebenthal, who's a partner equity strategist at Sarity Partners, about his view of the world and markets around there. Um, so, so you mentioned Twilio as one of these stocks, you know, is there a, a, and, and maybe potentially starting to dip your toe into the into the waters on some of the, the growthy names. How do you think about the businesses there? Um, what is it? Is there a segment? Is it just that they've, they've come down hard, but you still believe in the business? What, what's what's your sense on at least that name? Yeah, I think it's very easy to believe in that particular business. And Twilio, you know, is the behind the scenes operator that when you put in an order at Amazon and you get an email immediately back saying your order is recognized or, you know, when you are, as some of us are starting to do, taking flights again and you get these texts that say, hey, your gate has been moved from B37 to B31. Um, Twilio is the engine behind that. And when you think about what I just described, that's pretty cool. And that's going to grow. 
The question again is the price. And right now, Twilio's cash flows, apropos of the earlier discussion, are projected further out in time. But I suspect strongly that those cash flows are going to come in a lot better than expected. Now, there's a lot of question mark in what I just said. We have indeed, Jeremy, just started a position in Twilio, which for a more value guy like me is a big step. That's a big step. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, I've got a good team behind me who is pressing me and saying, no, 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 don't just look at Cisco Systems, look at a Twilio. Um, and so we've just put our toehold position in. For investors out there, I have to say, um, don't go out and just load up on Twilio. Don't Certainly not because I or anyone tells you to. You buy a toehold, and as, if it comes down, just because of the markets, interest rates, any of these things we're talking about, you add to it. Bottoming is a process. And these stocks are probably two-thirds of the way through this bottoming process. There might be more downside. As I said, maybe another 10 to 15%. If I'm wrong, I've got my toehold. But if I'm right, I'll be buying through that uh, remaining one-third of this bottoming process. Interesting. Is is there other of the, the – you mentioned sort of these high-flyer growth stocks and, and some of the, the popular managers who you know have been building you know, the symbolic uh, big, big exposures there – is, is is that following the herd in, in that crowding of these hyper-growth stocks? Is that another area you're looking for risks in the system as if any of that comes unwinding or, or anything in, in the popular of some of those, those – the concentration in ownership in some of these growthy names? That, you know, that's another fabulous question. And coincidentally, this morning, one of my research providers – sent me a very neat graph that just talked about correlation between stock returns, which normally goes up during a bear market because everything is going down at the same time. Um, but returns are starting to disperse. Um, and that means this is a great stock picking time. So if you are one of these very large, innovative, disruptive technology ETFs, you've got a problem. You've got so much money, you've got to put it to work everywhere, and you can't really discriminate. If, however, you are a portfolio manager like I am, and you can be more discriminatory, you can pick those stocks like a Twilio and maybe stay away from some of the other stocks. And what would be a good example? I think the, I think the SPAC community, I think there is uh, quite, quite a bit of chaff there that needs to be uh, winnowed out over time and will be winnowed out. That's not a place that I'm looking right now. But if you're a large ETF or mutual fund manager, you might just have to be there because you've got too much money to put to work. Um, in terms of you know the washout, certainly if you're a long-term investor and if you're a, a long-only manager, you do not want to see a washout in you know let's just call it like you know Kathy Wood. You don't want to see that. That's not good for the market. And, uh, uh, the Arc Innovation ETF is down by about a third. Uh, seems to be stabilizing here. I don't think it's going to jump up. And as I said, I think we're probably two thirds of the way through the bottoming process. Um, but she's got so much money that it's hard for her to be discriminatory. I'm much happier being able to pick out a Twilio from the herd as opposed to having throwing everything at the market. Um, when coming back to the value sectors and, and you mentioning rising growth or sort of rising rates being positive to things like financials, are there other segments within value or, or, or how you discriminate between those value sectors today that, that you think is, is prime for this environment? Well, okay, another good question. I do pay attention to my sector weightings in the portfolio, but I'm not slavishly devoted to uh, matching them. Now, here's an interesting example. Take a look at energy, which we know has been decimated over the many years uh, up till now. And it's now just a little under 3% of the S&P 500. Uh, we actually almost have double that weighting, which on the surface sounds like, wow, he's making some big energy bet here. But no, it just means I'm a little less than 6%. And what you're seeing now is demand picking up uh, for products. You're seeing uh, good pricing throughout the industry chain, meaning whether you're an E&P producer, you're an oil field servicer, you're a, a pipeline uh, transporter of these goods. All of, all of the economic activity uh, picking up is transmitting throughout that complex. So that was a combination of the prices in these stocks being utterly decimated uh, through last fall. Now you've, you can still get them at good prices while demand is picking up and pricing, again, throughout the industry chain is doing quite well. Um, any, when you think about the, the, the questions your clients are coming to you with today, when you think about the major things on, on people's minds, any, anything that's overly 
topical for what what the feedback is when you're when you're meeting with clients and and what their fears are? Well, you know, clients tend to be um, fairly happy when the markets are going up. Uh, most of my clients, in fact, all of my clients, very smart people, and they say, "Well, wait a second. How long can the markets keep going up?" Uh, and they sense this disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street, which we've talked about over the over the last year plus of how can the market be going so much higher when there's still now eight million people out of work. But that eight million is a lot less than it was uh, just 12 months ago. Um, and, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the profit picture is really quite bright. Now the talk about the disconnect between the markets and the economy is starting to center on inflation. Um, and that is probably the biggest topic today. Inflation, the effects on interest rates, and what the Fed will do, going back to my first comments. Again, uh, my analysis of this, uh, predicting the future is a, is a fool's business, but I'll engage in it. Um, I think it is transitory. It's not definite that it's transitory, but you know, you look at copper prices, you look at lumber prices, you look at iron ore prices, and you say, after a while, the end consumer is going to say, I don't want a new car at $40,000. I don't want a new house at you know, a median price coming up towards $400,000. Um, eventually, high prices have a curtailing effect that, in this case, should be enough to knock prices down without clobbering economic activity. But also in there is the idea of productivity. Now, I, I'm now going back to the beginning of the conversation between Chair Cohn and, and Professor Siegel, in which I make this observation. I mentioned productivity and, and how companies can do more with less workers. That's a benign outcome, except you're saying you're going to have fewer workers, right? Well, let's consider that we know the baby boomer generation is in the throes of retirement. Um, and, you know, there has been a long discussion about demographics in the developed markets and whether there will be enough workers to support uh, the retiring, the, the ever-growing retirement class. If those workers are getting paid more and it's not flowing through because of productivity, it's not flowing through to finished goods prices, we could be in a situation where that takes care of itself. Yes, you have fewer workers, but they're paid better and the productivity is taking care of uh, inflation. So that's, I, I, I don't know, I, we're going to have to see how that plays out. I know uh, productivity has jumped up a little bit recently, but as Chair Cohn said, it's after a long period of being in the doldrums. Let's see if it sticks. Yeah, and, and I think some of those demographic things are things you also – I look to Japan as an early lead for us. They have a very elderly population. You have all these older people retiring, making more money off the payrolls, and then the young people start getting big payrolls because there's just not enough demand. That might be one of the things we start seeing here years down the road as we go through our aging cycle. Uh, Jim, it's been a great conversation. Where can people find more from you? Uh, please go to the Cerity Partners website, C-E-R-I-T-Y Partners website. Uh, we've got a great thought leadership page there. Um, and also, I'm, I'm quite frequently on CNBC's halftime report, sometimes with Professor Siegel. Very uh, good. Noon Eastern time, about twice a week. Thank you. Thanks to Chris Tooks, uh, Patty Hall. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Market Sense, Series 132. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 